Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Euro Story Podcast, the stories of politics, law, and history of Europe. My name is Ara Pettersson, and with me is my co-host Floris Van Dorn. Hello. On this podcast, we're here to talk with researchers about all things Europe, and today we've got the pleasure of talking to Marco Piazentier. Hi, Marco. Hello. Hi. It's great to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming on board. Thanks. So Marco is a university researcher and another newly minted team leader here at Eurostory as part of Subproject 2, Discovering the Limits of Reason, Europe and the Crisis of Universalism. He has recently completed his monograph on biopolitics between nature and language, which was published by Routledge in 2020. Previously, he was a research fellow at the University of Kent and at the University of Uvascula, um, and these days, Marco's work primarily focuses on themes related to post-Kentian European philosophy, social and political thought, and the history of 20th century philosophy. And today, we will be talking with Marco about biopolitics and the meaning of modern life, which is um, which sounds remarkably um, <laughs> arcane to me. So I'm sure there's plenty to... Um, to, to me to as well. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see how it plays out. I'm sure there's plenty to unpack there. So um, before going into um, biopolitics, Marco, who are you and what, are, what on earth are you doing in Finland? Wow, I paid my analyst a lot of money to find <laughs> an answer to this question and I haven't uh, had one yet. <laughs> but, uh, but I can give you uh, maybe some hint about my uh, academic background and how I started studying uh, philosophy. And, uh, well, I had a degree from the University of Trieste in philosophy and psychology. And uh, Trieste is a rather small town in northern east of Italy. But the Department of Philosophy had a quite uh, interdisciplinary vibe. So we used to study both uh, obscure continental philosophy about uh, uh, obscure theories uh, uh, about modern society as well as uh, philosophy of science. And so also in my academic career, I try to somehow keep these souls of philosophy alive in my research. So on the one hand, right. a critical approach to society, and on the other, an approach more focused on the scientific worldview. Mm. And, uh, and in this regard, uh, a very significant, significant experience for me was an internship at the psychiatric clinic San Giovanni. Okay. Um, at the same city in Trieste. And this clinic is rather important, uh, both in Italy and in Europe, because in the 70s it was the testing ground for the closure of uh, asylums in Italy. And uh, there is this uh, famous uh, psychiatrist called Franco Basaglia, yes. and uh, he started working there in the 70s, and he proposed uh, the dismantling of the psychiatric hospitals, pioneering really a new way of thinking about mental health and showing that uh, uh, the idea of mad madness is, at least to a certain extent, a social uh, construction. Mm -hmm. And then when you build uh, a physical wall, like the wall of the asylum, then you're also building a metaphorical, a conceptual wall, mm. wall that separates the inside from the outside, the uh, mad person from the sane one. And 
And during those years, I was also uh, reading Michel Foucault, that is this uh, obscure French uh, philosopher. <laughs> remarkably obscure. <laughs> remarkably <laughs> obscure. And in fact, uh, his uh, uh, early works are about uh, the concept of madness. Yes. And, uh, and this is why I also wanted to have this um, internship in this psychiatric clinic, because I really could appreciate how philosophy can help us to reshape uh, uh, not only conceptual walls, but also physical ones, and how these two types uh, of, of structure are interrelated to each other. And, uh, and I think that also the relationship between uh, um, uh, nature and culture that inform a complex understanding of the human being was um, relevant for developing the interest in biopolitics, because biopolitics, as the etymology of the term suggests, is about the relationship between politics and bios, that is the Greek term for life. So the relationship between nature and society, between uh, uh, history and biology. And so when you address the question, for instance, of mental health, you really need to keep this uh, broad holistic view in mind to avoid reductionism, mm. to avoid to reduce mental health, for instance, to a social construction mm -hmm. or just to a biological mm -hmm. uh, idea. And uh, yes, and then after after the degree in Trieste, there weren't fundings for a PhD, <laughs> and uh, as it often happens in Italy, so it's not a surprise. And so I um, found a PhD from the University of Kent right. uh, at the School of European Culture and Languages, and um, and there I developed uh, more these uh, these topics, uh, focusing especially on Italian philosophy. Since there are many Italian contemporary philosophers that work on these theories about the relationship of nature and culture and, and so on. But I guess um, uh, theories apart, a very a very good uh, experience related to this academic path was the possibility of living in different countries. Mm. And uh, every time I moved to a new country, obviously I had some visiting positions, but then every time I moved to a country, for instance, for the PhD or then for postdoc, I moved with the idea that that country um, would have been home. Mm. And this creates a sense of disorientation to, to a certain extent, because obviously you no longer belong to your country of origin, but you not even belong to the new country. So you are sort of in between. And, um, and, and this, this could be uh, quite disorienting. And uh, it, it, it's also a bit scary to a certain extent because you lose uh, some ground. But it's, at the same time, it also gives uh, a strong sense of freedom, a freedom of experimenting with new identities, with new possibilities, a freedom of challenging habits that you thought they were written in stone. And so I guess the academic career went hand in hand with this uh, <laughs> existential process, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> that is still going on. <laughs> and and but then the concept of biopolitics is very much, or we very much originates from continental philosophy, um, and I was just wondering, how was the experience of biopolitics in that sense as, a, as an academic researcher in, in a place like Britain and now in Finland? Has it been different? How has it sort of shaped your understanding of the, um, the governance of, of, of biology and life in a sense? 
that's a very interesting question and also difficult one. I don't know whether I have an answer. Obviously, a biopolitics has to do with life. And so um, for sure, life in these uh, countries is, is different from the way in which you relate with people, the way in which you go to the doctor. And, and for sure, there are structure and procedure that really uh, define your identity uh, that are different uh, in, in these uh, countries. At the same time, you also discover that, after all, it's not so different. And maybe you also discover that there is a European identity somewhere there in between these countries. And uh, as Nietzsche would say, you, <laughs> you probably start Already. discovering, Already. <laughs> discovering what, what it means to be a good European, because for Nietzsche, being a good European had to do with being a free spirit. So obviously, freedom is such an ideological term nowadays, and uh, it should be probably deconstructed. But at the same time, there is probably some, some truth in the idea that uh, uh, European thought, despite all the problems, despite uh, all the violence that it brought and still brings, also was able to um, invent a notion of freedom that has to do with a critical work uh, on, on our limits, on our existential limits. And so this, uh, this I think, was quite interesting, yes, to discover. Yes. So shall we, shall we start and unpack this, this term, biopolitics, a, a bit more? Because if, if you really start doing that a bit, um, would you be able to, for the, for the illuminators, in the spirit of the scientific revolution as well, how this concept, especially wedded to the, to the meaning of modernity, has sort of emerged through history and how it informs contemporary life in, in quite, or the way we think about contemporary life in, in quite profound ways. Yes, you are absolutely true that uh, in order to understand biopolitics, you have to somehow try to understand what it means to be modern. Uh, Biopolitics has to do with biological life and there could be an argument according to which uh, politics has always been biopolitical. But for sure, I think that uh, um, it is quite s significant to place the birth of biopolitics, the birth of the government of uh, the living, in relationship with the major shifts that characterized modernity. Finding an ultimate uh, definition of modernity is impossible, so here we will provide just some random examples. But for instance, Please. if we... <laughs> I'll try. And uh, if, if we consider, for instance, the, uh, the scientific revolutions that occurred in the 16th and 17th century, especially uh, revolutions in astronomy, so uh, these were remarkable scientific achievements that they uh, showed us that uh, uh, nature is not a spiritual entity, that we can uh, have a mechanicistic understanding of, of nature. And uh, through these scientific revolutions, we also developed an experimental and scientific method that allowed scientists to provide empirical answers to questions that before modernity were considered to be purely speculative, belonging to theology and metaphysics. But this revolution also had a crucial impact about the way in which human beings understand themselves. So, who are we? Well, previously, Ada, you asked me this question, this <laughs> impossible question. But for sure, uh, 
challenging uh, an anthropocentric uh, view of the human being according to which the human being is at the center of the universe really redefines the answer to the question what kind of creature do we think we are and and also what are the political consequences of this new conception of the human being but the transition uh, going on um, moving on according to what also Floris was saying before about the revolutions in modern science, uh, it's not just about uh, a cosmological view of the human being that changes tra- thanks to the revolution in astronomy, but also a transformation about uh, the way in which we understand ourselves as um, living creatures. And here um, we could... Uh, Uh, refer to a famous, uh, well-known painting by Rembrandt, the 17th century Dutch painter. And the painting is called The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Talb. Yes, and I've got it here printed. Unfortunately, the listeners can't see it, of course. But um, just to to describe it for the listeners, what what we see is is um, an autopsy, I think, of... of, um, Sort of um, performed by this this famous surgeon, I, pre- I presume, from the seventeenth century. Was, yes, um, who's probably commissioned this painting as well. And around him are doctors, and they're all sort of observing the um, yes, the musculature of the um, the arm, and yes. um, and how all the, all the tendons, where they are, how they might perform, and so forth. Exactly. And um, well, probably the victim <laughs> or the um, uh, would have would have been um, a um, an executed um, prisoner. Yes. So that's, that's good to know as well. I think yes. in terms of sort of controlling, not just the living, or but also the Absolutely. dead. Absolutely. Um, um, but again, what's what's again the significance of this painting? You think? Yes. The, the question is, what do we observe in that painting? And what we see is that um, this painting is a sort of representation of the capacity of modern science to grasp and manipulate the mechanisms that regulate the human body. So this painting really expresses the modern confidence in the human capacity to conquer and manipulate nature. Yes. And, and this is something rather new in the history of, uh, of, of Europe. And, uh, and it is in light of this scientific revolution that, that we have to place the birth of biopolitics. So this new materialistic conception of the body, the idea that we can manipulate the bodies and the populations. And this revolu- the revolution does not only occur in, um, in astronomy, in medicine, but also in politics. And Thomas Hobbes, that is conventionally considered to be uh, the philosopher that structured uh, polit- modern political science wanted to be considered as an important scientist. So his aim was that uh, of creating a discipline uh, that uh, had the same uh, structure of the natural sciences, was rooted on a scientific conception of the human being. And this discipline, that is uh, political sciences, had to place the conservation of life, the preservation of life, conservatio vitae in Latin, at the very center of uh, its theoretical framework. So politics starts to be uh, the politics of life, starts to be biopolitics. Or conserving and controlling and managing life. Precisely. More generally, yeah. Precisely. And this obviously uh, is uh, very... Uh, important, has many important uh, um, 
positive elements, but also comes with uh, great risks. And the history of modern Europe is disseminated with these uh, examples, also tragic examples. Well, obviously, Nazism, for instance. Now we are making a very, a very significant jump, and so it's also important to take the necessary uh, distinctions. But, but for sure, uh, Nazism has to do with a concept of biological purity. And in the name of that uh, idea of purity, uh, with the idea of conserving that type of life, you eliminate other lives that are supposedly contaminating that purity. And so you can see how this transformation uh, of the conception of the human being comes together with... uh, um, dangerous outcomes. But I think it is also important to trace a distinction between science and politics. So um, one, w- one mistake that many biopolitical theorists, in my view, tend to commit is to reduce science to uh, a political invention. Obviously, there is science and there is politics and the two are connected. But I guess it is important to somehow keep the two distinguished and not think that science is the source of evil in itself. So this is very important in my view. But there does seem a bit of a tension there between, or at least in in the way we tend to perceive of nature, between on on the one hand saying, well, life should be about controlling nature, but then how do we seek purpose? Does it come from nature or does it still come from otherworldly entities? That's the question. That's really the question. And uh, I think uh, European philosophy, um, since Kant, but even before, I guess the the entire history of modern European philosophy, and for sure many other philosophies, but since I'm focusing on this in my research, can be considered as an attempt to find a space for freedom and meaning within a conception of the human being that is grounded in nature. And, and the risk, obviously, is always to create a realm that exceeds nature, and so to reconstitute a pre-modern conception. But at the same time, the risk is also that uh, of uh, reducing meaning to nature, or thinking that, uh, uh, from moving to another perspective, that science can have uh, existential questions for us, while in reality science gives us tools to understand the world. It describes the world in a way that uh, previously was inimaginable for us. But I guess it is in light of this description that we have to try to build a meaning rather than try to find meaning in this description because this is just a description. And so I guess the question the question of meaning in a, a modern um, worldview is really extremely important because modernity is uh, historically associated with a process of disenchantment. And, um, but then is it possible to re-enchant in the world within this framework? And uh, if, if, if you find an answer to that, please, please call me <laughs> as, soon, as soon as possible. <laughs> I, I surely will. So um, as a classicist myself, Yes. I see that there's a place for history and everything. And um, 
although I like science. <laughs> Where does um, history come into all of this? Or does it? Is there a place for it? Yeah, that's another, that's another very difficult question. And uh, obviously, uh, history is, is crucial to put things in perspective. And, uh, and if we um, stick to um, the critical approaches to, to biopolitics, namely to those approaches that try to analyze the development of the politics of life in, uh, in modernity, uh, we notice that history has been uh, a crucial uh, tool to understand how this form of politics unfold. And, uh, and more than that, it was also a way to resist this politics, because through history you can obviously um, place a given worldview uh, in perspective and notice that this is just one of the many ways in which we human beings have come up with an idea of understanding ourselves and the world that surrounds us. And so I think that uh, no matter how science can be and will be even more precise and accurate in providing a description of the world, we have always to situate that perspective in relationship with an historical understanding of science and its condition of possibilities, its, its social uh, conditions of possibility. And so really history, history and science have to be always, in my view, connected to have uh, an in-depth understanding of, uh, of where we are and what we are doing. And this takes us right back to, to the concept of biopolitics, because in a sense, I think that was very much what Foucault himself, for example, for sure. tried to do, trying to place history and science into conversation with one another. And you also try and sort of um, do this in your book, in a sense. Um, but just, just to um, further unpick what it would mean to have a more sort of historical understanding of, of the world as such, and life as well, what would it mean to be... Um, a, a researcher working within that tradition, especially, for example, when trying to critique certain understandings of race or, or gender, for example? Yes, that's, that's, that's a very important question that uh, brings us to, to a methodological point. Uh, and uh, the methodology that you would adopt in these cases is, is genealogy. And uh, genealogy is a way of doing history that shows that uh, uh, what we think to be an ultimate origin or an ultimate way of understanding the world in, in reality is nothing but uh, a perspective about looking at things. Basically, nothing is written in stone. Then obviously this leads to a paradox, though, mm -hmm. because if nothing is written in stone, <laughs> the sentence I just said is written in stone, <laughs> yes or not. <laughs> and then this is, this is the ultimate paradox of, of, doing, of doing research through, through genealogy, that then you end up, uh, you end up uh, in, uh, in, in a difficult position, probably, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's really a necessary uh, perspective to challenge those views that we take uh, for granted, mm -hmm. that we take uh, uh, immutable, and that uh, 
serve as a ground for creating clear-cut distinction between different groups in a society or between different societies. And so there is a strong emancipatory message in this methodology. And this is why we tend to call it critical. So there is this critical emancipatory idea that comes with it. We've dropped Nietzsche, we've dropped Foucault. How to make these more concrete? An impossible question for a philosopher. (laughs) So could you give us an example um, of biopolitics in contemporary society? Yes, for sure. Well, th- there are many. The, the COVID pandemic is a clear example of biopolitics and the climate change is uh, another example of uh, biopolitics. And uh, in, in both cases, there have been many, many discussions concerning the relationship between uh, science and, uh, and society, between uh, uh, medicine and politics. For instance, when we consider the COVID pandemic, the question is to which extent um, doctors should take decisions about society. And uh, the question of vaccination, for instance, is still a quite uh, a hot topic. And, and also it is interesting to understand the reasons why people decide not to, not to uh, get the vaccine. And uh, now, nowadays there is this uh, uh, well-known expression that has to do with uh, post-truth. And the idea is that uh, um, uh, people are simply ignorant and so they uh, don't want to take the vaccine because in reality they don't understand science. And this is certainly a way to understand uh, this question, but there are also other ways of uh, of framing the question of vaccine hesitancy, for instance. And so another way to frame it is to think that in reality it's not a matter of truth, but it's a matter of trust. And the fact that people no longer trust uh, the institutions that should care about them. And this is a very biopolitical topic. And, uh, and so when we come to, to Europe or the West, we should also start wondering why there is this lack of trust in institutions. And, uh, and one way to, to address this question is uh, uh, to address the, the, the dismantling of, for instance, the welfare state in European countries and the fact that people have this feeling that uh, um, economic interest prevail to the well-being of the population. And so if biopolitics has to do with the well-being of the population, in reality it turns out that there are other questions and other interests that seems to prevail. And so one way to probably reframe uh, this debate about uh, uh, vaccination is to address it from um, the idea of state phobia, the phobia of the state, why people are today scared about the state, why, why they think that the state is regulated by dynamics that uh, exceed the structure of the state itself, such as uh, profit, capitalism, and so on. 
and this is just one one of the examples the other one obviously has to do with with climate change and how we we should uh, use science in order to uh, to better understand how to move how to move forward with the response to climate change but i don't know where your question wanted which direction your question wanted to take well in for example on this on climate change um one could wonder um since the since we all know that the world is in a climate emergency and this is a again a very scientific understanding of what's happening in a sense but, but where would this leave critique for example because hmm. um this is clearly happening and yet many critical theorists themselves very much believe in in it in it being the case but then if they suddenly become wedded to this idea of science that they've constantly been trying to critique uh, where does this leave critique from their perspective and is there a danger there that by li- by sort of wedding themselves too much to this understanding of science in this context they lose a sense of perspective on on the importance of critique for sure yeah this is this is very this is very interesting and and for sure the question of climate change has led to a transformation of the relationship between science and critique as you correctly said critique has historically been somehow opposed to science mm. I've seen science with skeptic skepticism but nowadays i guess we have to partially revise this relationship and think that uh, science is a tool that can be adopted in order to provide a critical understanding a critical picture of the world this does not mean that obviously we have to forget an historical understanding of mm-hmm. science like ada was mentioning before so this is very important because no matter how true how true a theory can be we have always to contextualize it place it in context understand its its social um conditions for existence but at the same time for sure i guess critique nowadays has to drop a radical critique of uh, of science and uh, and embrace science in a more affirmative manner this is really essential and try once again trying to place like politics and nature or maybe or politics exactly. and history in conversation with one another exactly. and rather than trying to eliminate one of the two within that conversation yes. and i think this is really a, a generational transformation in the in the in the field of critical theory yes okay it's time for our bonus question yes uh, no <laughs> <laughs> so we ask guests to tell us something that they do outside of academics and i always tell an example of myself so i love watching biathlon okay. so marco what do you like to do outside of the world of Foucault and Nietzsche and biopolitics? Wow. I guess a proper academic answer to this question would be to say translating Homer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But uh, but in reality no. In reality I guess I don't know. It's good to take a break and leave the world of academia and I don't know find the time to spending time with a friend that you haven't seen for a long time or uh, learning a new recipe now i'm 
learning new recipes using zucchine they are called in italian how do you how do you uh, say zucchine in english zucchini well, it could be zucchini or, or courgette or, ah, there we go yeah. okay yes so i'm very into this new uh, cooking things at the moment and, and so yes i guess or just going for a walk or visiting that place that is Uh, just in front of your place, uh, but you never go because you think it's too close and there is always time to go. So I guess doing these things is very good also for, for doing good research, I guess. The Finnish way of saying um, zucchini, the, the translation of Kesakorpitsa is summer pumpkin. Summer <laughs> yeah. It, it feels a bit like a pumpkin when you... Mm, yeah, it does. Yeah, it. Yeah, no, yeah, no, it, it's kind of like a pumpkin, yeah. Summer pumpkin. Interesting. Mm, yeah. Thank you, Marco. Thank coming, you for coming on to the podcast and talking about biopolitics and zucchinis. <laughs> biopolitics, the meaning of life, and courgettes. Yeah, <laughs> wow, it's been fantastic. An absolute, absolute pleasure. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. It was really great to be with you. Thank, Thank you. you again for your fantastic questions. Cheers. Cheers.